Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Puff Puff Pass. My name's Christian. And my name's Sahara. And today, we are continuing our sci-fi month. Woo! Woo! Sahara, how's our month going so far? Um... Um... Uh, so, let's see. Our last episode was Dune. That was, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Um... Specifically, how's your weekend going? Have terribly. You ha- uh, terribly? It was so bad, guys. Guys, <laughs> we have been so sick. Which okay? is probably why if I sound a bit stuffed up, it's because I am. And if I ever take a second to, like, like collect myself before I finish a sentence, it's because I feel like, ugh. Because, uh, yesterday... Well, Sahara's been sick, like, all weekend. Mm. All week, really. Mm. But I... And I was I was super sick earlier in the week, like, Monday... Like, Saturday, like Friday, Saturday. Yeah. Of like this last week, that would have been uh, like the last week weekend in December. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Sahara's been sick these past few days, so I probably gave her what I had. But then, uh, dude, we got these new edibles, and Christian greened out. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I. They they said on the package that they were like actually like less in terms of dosage than what we've been getting, mm-hmm. and so I was like, all right, so I took the whole one. And it, like, dude, I was, like, vomiting up my entire... Like, I, 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 my whole body felt fuzzy, and then, like, I leaned back, and I, like, went, I closed my eyes and passed out for a little bit, mm-hmm. and I woke up, and I was, like, reach for the trash can. <laughs> yeah, reach for the trash can right next to mm-hmm. our couch, and I just immediately start blowing my entire stomach into it. Mm-hmm. Like... We can probably edit this out later. I don't know. How, I don't know how gross this is, but if you've ever thrown up and there's like no liquid, it's just dry. Like whatever you ate, yeah, is just coming like coming out, and you can feel it like yeah. being pushed up your throat. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that was awful. I'm so sorry, dude. It was whatever. But <laughs> now I'm just gonna stick on like smoking weed for, for, for <laughs> a while. So happy I don't want to try those again. Yeah, like, I bet you won't. I'm not. I tried one earlier today, and I took like. Half of a, one. Like half of one, and I did pretty fine. But I can understand why getting too high on that would be a little scary. I was like, "Is this it?" Because he told me he was not having a good time, and I was like, "Oh, he's just fucking around." Yeah, I, I in fact was not just fucking around. Anyway, uh, so this week we will be continuing our sci-fi month with the Twilight Zone, <gasps> specifically three episodes. We are doing an episode from season two. Episode 29, The Obsolete Man. Season 3, Episode 2, The Arrival. And Season 5, Episode 26, I Am the Night, Color Me Black. Mm. Alright? So, Sahara. Christian. What did you think about these? Um, I think two out of the three were like really good. Really? Yeah. What was The Arrival a bit... Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of boring. I wanted one to, like, slow, like pace out, you know? Yeah. I didn't want, like, three super exciting ones, but... Well, I was kind of expecting... More? Yeah. Yeah. It is a bit of a letdown, but yeah. I, I like it, kind of. Yeah. Anyway, so... So why'd you choose it? I just liked it. Oh, okay. All right. So, uh, The Obsolete Man came out in June, June 2nd of 1961. It was directed by Elliot Silverstein, who also directed episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Oh, wow. But you didn't know that. Uh, written by Rod Sterling. And, uh... Sahara, do you want to get into the episode? Mm, or, should, or should I ask you some questions yeah, first? Yeah, ask me some questions. You like some questions? Yeah, a little bit. I know you love some questions. So, Sahara, this episode, the title, The Obsolete Man. Uh-huh. What do you, like, think it, like, means to be 
obsolete. For something to be obsolete. When I think of, like, planned obsolescence... Obsolescence? Yeah, obsolescence. Obsolescence. Shut the fuck up. Anyway, when I think of that, I think of something that, like, doesn't work anymore. And with this episode, I guess I understand that obsolete means without a purpose. Or, like, we don't need, it's not working anymore. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is how I associate that. Really? Yeah. What about you? Um, definitely, yeah. Mm. I always see obsolescence as, like there's something better that has replaced it. Mm-hmm. So, just given the tune of this episode, mm-hmm. they haven't replaced him with anything. They yeah. just have done away with what he does. Well, not entirely, because the guy that's on the bottom replaces him. What? The guy on the bottom. You see that there's two... Oh, well, yeah, but yeah, I'm talking about saying. the main guy. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. I guess there's two main guys. Yeah, that was true. That was true. Uh, did you have any questions for me? Um... I guess I'll say about mine till the end. Okay, I have, I have like one more. Okay. So, in this episode, uh-huh. we see how the state controls everything, yeah. right? And for those who don't know, every Twilight Zone episode, they're not like related to each other. Uh-huh. So, uh, they're we're, the plots are pretty simple, uh-huh. not super confusing. Yeah. We hope we did our best. So, what role does information play in a world where the truth comes from the state? Mm. Yeah. It's a little too deep for I got an episode. The, I got the deep questions. I, I got the essay questions for you. I don't know, because I feel like... Like, obviously, like, you know, fascism plays a big part in this episode. And yeah. I just feel like, like, blocking information. But I think in this case, I think it's, like, freedom of religion. I wouldn't say freedom of information. Mm-hmm. Is what I would say. All right. And... What about you? Definitely, yeah. I would say so, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't know. It's also kind of just, like, when it comes to, like, in this episode, they have kind of taken tr- control of all, like, the flow of information. That's yeah. why they don't like books or yeah. libraries or things like that. But I thought maybe that, like, I feel like they could have chosen any book, but I think it's really interesting that they use specifically Christianity and the Holy Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was mainly just the, like associate mm-hmm. like with like uh who the average viewer back then yeah they were in the 60s they were like, i don't know it kind of yeah. reminded me of a lot and i wrote this in my notes but it reminded me of a lot like uh like oh we as the majority religion are being persecuted and this is gonna happen to us if we uh follow the lord you know what i mean yeah it, it felt a lot like that to me mm-hmm. so i guess like in a way i do like how rebellious and to use Christianity as a weapon, mm-hmm. you know? But I also think that, like, it could be completely misconstrued. Yeah. Like, definitely. the message of what that one guy was trying to get out there. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So, I'm glad that you used that, mm-hmm. uh, that word. What would you say about being, like, angry or uh, controversial or something? I can't remember Misconstrued? What, no, it was or that, ah, whatever. So, Rod Starling. Uh-huh. Born Christmas Day, 1924, uh-huh. so December 25th, in Syracuse, New York. Uh-huh. Okay? He was born to a uh, Jewish family, mm-hmm. you know, in upstate New York. Uh, his mother was a housemaker. His father was a secretary, amateur inventor, inventor some other things, you know, like that. Uh, but he spent most of his youth... Uh, 
south of Syracuse, where he was born, like mm-hmm. 70 miles south in Binghamton, New York. Mm-hmm. His family moved there in 1926. Oh, wow. So, uh, Rod and his older brother, brother, Robert, they entertained themselves with uh, pulp magazines. Mm-hmm. And I have a question for you. Do you know where the term, like, pulp, as in, like, pulp magazine, pulp fiction came from? Do you know, like, why it's called pulp? No. So, back... It's up too much orange no. So back then, <laughs> magazines, like, the paper was made with, like, mm-hmm. uh, like wood pulp mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, I mean, most paper is made out of pulp, mm-hmm. but it was, like, really cheap because they had to make so many copies of it, so yeah. it was super cheap paper. Yeah. Uh, anyway. So. Rod himself, he would just act out dialogue from them, mm-hmm. you know? Like, he would do that. So from a very early age, he loved, like... Acting. Not even acting, just, like, the voice, the power of sound, you know? Yeah. Uh, which is interesting, because, like, in elementary school, mm-hmm. uh, he was uh, kind of, like, dismissed from a lot by a lot of his teachers. Right. Like, oh, he's a lost cause. Oh. Yeah. However, his seventh grade English teacher encouraged him to enter the school's public speaking cur- extracurriculars. So he joined debate. He was a, he was a speaker at his high school graduation. That's he wrote cool. for the school newspaper. Yeah. And he was... Uh, well regarded as a, a social activist. So, when Serling eventually moved on into Hollywood, mm-hmm. he was known as the angry young man of Hollywood. <laughs> can you see that in a lot of these episodes? Like, can you see why this would have caused controversy back then? Uh, yeah, especially with the last episode. Yeah. And he was just known the angry young man because he clashed with uh, television executives yeah, and sponsors all uh, the time when it came to things like uh, censorship and yeah, racism and yeah. war, especially Vietnam, yeah. which was happening at the time. Uh-huh. But, yeah, so he was definitely, like, very much an activist from a young, very young age. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, in the 1940s, and this will come up later, but, you know, Sterling, he enlisted in the army, uh, he served, and a, a bunch of other things. He was actually, he, him being Jew, Jewish, by the way, mm-hmm. he was actually pretty upset when he learned that he was being deployed to the Pacific what? because he wanted to fight. Hitler and the oh. Germans. But we won't get much into Serling's like life then. I want to get into the episode a little bit first. Okay. So, Sahara. Yeah. Are you ready to start The Obsolete Man? Yeah. Alright. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's a signpost up ahead. Your next stop. The Twilight Zone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, Wordsworth, Romney, obsolescence. We hear the court clerk say out into the courtroom, mm-hmm. Romney Wordsworth has been called into the court for the charge of obsolescence. We open in a courtroom, a man, the chancellor, on a tall podium, and another man seated below him, both facing the door towards the opposite end. The man on the lower platform speaks into a microphone calling for Romney Wordsworth to enter. Did you know that the doors, that that's like the biggest doors that they ever made at that studio? Oh, really? Yeah. I did not yeah, know that. Yeah, I got that from a video that I watched. I was like, wow, that's crazy. Because cool. in that episode, these doors are tall as fuck. Like, oh my goodness. They're a good 30 yeah. plus feet. The door to the courtroom opens, and as it does, Romney Wordsworth enters as we hear this narration from Rod Serling. You walk into this room at your own risk, because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world, it is simply an extension of what began in the old one. 
It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the, the tipping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the superstates that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. We're then introduced to Wordsworth, who we see on screen. The Chancellor states that a field investigation over the past year and 11 months has found Wordsworth to be obsolete. And I love the way he worded it too. Uh, he's been under investigation for the mandatory period of the year and 11 months. Which means like the bare minimum, which means they were like trying to be as efficient as possible. The judge says that this hearing is uh, more of a is less a pre preliminary. The judge says that this hearing is just to make a finding and to sentence Wordsworth. So, to start off with questioning, the chancellor's like Wordsworth, what is your occupation? And he's like a librarian. And then you hear people in the crowd, like the jury, I guess you would call it, start to laugh. And the chancellor's like, did I hear this right? Yeah. You know. And he's like. Uh, uh, did he ask? And he asked the man below him, who's like the court clerk, mm -hmm. uh, "Has this man? Uh, does this man know his rights? And has he had counsel?" And he says yes to both of them. Like he knows his rights. He went through orientation. Uh, the chancellor then tells Wordsworth, who has taken a step back in, into the shadow of the room, to stand back in the light. Sarah, mm -hmm. would you like to recreate how he says that? Turn back into the light. Yeah, like I, how, how the judge says it. I I just know he kind of like, yells at him. Wordsworth, stand back in the light. The Chancellor asks Wordsworth again once he steps back what his occupation is. But the but Wordsworth says, I am a librarian. You know, like, uh, that is my uh, job. That is my profession. Mm -hmm. And if you people choose to call that obsolete, and uh, the judge is like, what do, you, what do you mean by you people? Do you make reference to the state? And Wordsworth, Wordsworth, uh, so but pretty much what we see here is that the state thinks like very highly of themselves, mm -hmm. essentially. It's like, what do you mean you people? Anyway, the Chancellor says uh, that since there are no books, there are no libraries, and thus there's really no need for librarians, and he compares it to, uh, to a minister having no purpose, uh, because to them the state proved that there is no God. But this troubles Wordsworth, who declares that there is a God, but the Chancellor tells Wordsworth that, that he's wrong. Wordsworth then says, you cannot erase God with an edict. Sahara, what do you think of that line? I have no idea what an edict is. Like a rule? Oh. Like, it means basically saying, like, you can't, like, sign a law that gets rid of God. Yeah. What do you think of that line? I, like, it goes hard. Like, low-key, like, everyone deserves to have freedom of religion, no matter how crazy it is. Yeah. But, um, I think it's interesting that people, like, are like, no, science, you know? Yeah. Science. But, uh, yeah. that's just my opinion. Anyway. So the Chancellor tells Wordsworth that he is obsolete, but Wordsworth says, no man is obsolete. And he says, quote, I am nothing more than a reminder to you that you cannot, cannot destroy truth by burning pages. Sahara, what do you think? Oh, definitely like uh, Fahrenheit, like that book. 451. Yeah. I know it's for something. <laughs> I know it's for something. The book about burning books. Yeah. Anyway. The Chancellor calls Wordsworth a bug and that he, like an insect, has no purpose. He tells him he's not human, but that he is a librarian. He says that they have no purpose and therefore are obsolete. You waste our time, Mr. Wordsworth, and you are not worth the waste, the Chancellor says. The board finds that Wordsworth is, in fact, obsolete, and he is sentenced to liquidation, as they call it, within 48 hours. 
but they allow him to choose the method and the time of his death. Would you want to do something like that? Like choose how and when you die in the next two days? Yeah. I think that put too much pressure on me. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, and they're like, oh, you know, I'd probably do it like quickly, like probably the next day, like, okay. or maybe like after you could like, sleep. Yeah, I don't I'd think do you like, could sleep. I don't know. I'd want to take like a sleeping pill, and then like in the night they kind of just put a needle through me, and then I die. Oh, yeah, wow. I don't do that. Oh, okay. Sorry. And you thought about this, huh? Uh-huh. Anyway, Wordsworth says that he is a very rich man. And the Chancellor's like, uh, speak up, and Wordsworth's like, I'm just saying I'm a very rich man due to my luxury of choices. But he ends up choosing an assassin to execute him. But an assassin where only he and Wordsworth would know the method of his execution. Wordsworth also requests to die with an audience, and the Chancellor grants this request, saying that it has an educative effect on the populace. So Wordsworth then says, I have no doubt. And Wordsworth chooses to die at midnight the next day in his room. The judge dismisses him, and the man seated below calls Wordsworth odd, but the chancellor brushes him off, saying they will, quote, show the world how this obsolete man, this librarian, dies, end quote. So, Sarah, what did you think of this opening? I thought it was very interesting. I was just like, oh, God, like, honestly, I just thought, like, because you told me about this episode before, so I kind of knew where it was heading. Yeah. But, like, the fact that this man is, like, so cocky, you know? Like, he really believes in the state, which that in itself is kind of a religion. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting, how the fact that they can't, like, point that out. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Alright, so then. We cut to Wordsworth in his room. He's lying down. He hears the clock ticking. He fr- frantically turns it around so he doesn't have to see the time. But we read it. It's 11.15pm. So, it's coming up. He's yeah. got 45 minutes left. Yeah. The Chancellor arrives at Wordsworth's home. And Wordsworth welcomes him in. Uh, the Chancellor asks Wordsworth uh, if he knows why he he came, and Wordsworth says, "Well, you know, I invited you." He's like, "No, but do you know why I actually came? Do you know why I actually came, knowing that Wordsworth could kill me or something like that?" And the Chancellor says, "It is to prove that the state is not afraid of him and that it has no fears." But Wordsworth laughs us off, citing how much effort from the state it is to to prove that they're not afraid of an obsolete librarian. Wordsworth says he knows why he's here, whether the Chancellor will admit it to himself or not, but it's that Wordsworth doesn't fit. The Chancellor says Wordsworth do- indeed does fit, and that, like all the others, he will beg and plead shortly. So, what do you what do you gather from these two characters? You see, both of them are both pretty sure of themselves, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. But how do you, like, differentiate it between the two? I think they are a good foil, almost, to themselves. Yeah. But I do think that Wordsworth, like... Like this, like, this is a man, like, walking to death, you know? Like, he believes that his god is gonna, like, save him and stuff. Yeah. Which is, like, like there's nothing wrong with that. Like, truly, like, hi-ho, but, like, I believe in... I believe in Wordsworth is what I'm saying. Like, I believe in him, and I feel like that he knows slowly that the Chancellor is low-key cracking because he keeps repeating these things that we know he's been, like... Like he's reassuring yes, himself. Yes, yeah, like, almost like he's reassuring himself. Yeah. And because Wordsworth is always like, oh, I'm sure you are. You know what I mean? I have no doubt. Like, he's so, like, sarcastic towards him. Yeah. Wordsworth then gestures to the camera on the wall of his room uh, as the lights come on, and he's uh, seemingly impressed by how little time it took up. Only 15 minutes is what he says. The Chancellor says it's not unusual for them to televise such events, as during the mass executions the year prior, they put to death 1,300 people around the clock in as little as six hours. 
It's wild. Very. But Wordsworth says, you people, the state, uh, talking to, talking about the state, you people never learn, and that history teaches them nothing. But the Chancellor says they have, in fact, learned a lot from their predecessors, that those among the likes of Hitler and Stalin did not do too much, but that they didn't do enough. Too many undesirable, such as the old, sick, maimed, and deformed, were left around, but this state eliminated them. So, I thought this line was, like, pretty great until they, like, name drop. I feel like it would be better if they didn't do that. Like, yeah. we already know what this is. You know, like, you don't need to, like, hone it in. Yeah. But I think it's more like a, get it, we're evil. This is what happened. Evil. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. I thought it was corny, but it is what it is. So the Chancellor then, like, looks around Wordsworth's room, and he and he sees all, like, the uh, furniture that, he, ha- that he, he has, and he's like, wow, this is, like, you know, it's pretty great uh, furniture, and Wordsworth is like, yeah, I, I, I built it myself, uh, and the Chancellor's like, ah, oh, well, carpentry, that's, that, that's a useful skill, because that's how Wordsworth stayed around this long, after yeah. the library's closed, he gave, brought up carpentry, mm-hmm. but, um... Uh, he says, oh, carpentry, that's a useful skill, unlike being a librarian. And Wordsworth glares at the Chancellor, mocking him, but the Chancellor says, you're not facing the camera, Mr. Wordsworth. You're cheating your audience. They want to see how you die. Please, Mr. Wordsworth, turn around, face the camera. But as the Chancellor goes to leave, what Wordsworth calls to him, telling him that he has plenty of time and that he isn't going anywhere, end quote. This confuses the Chancellor, but Wordsworth explains that the method of his execution was a bomb that the assassin put in his room somewhere. The Chancellor attempts to leave again, but finds that the door is locked. The Chancellor then questions Wordsworth about this, asking why, about why he's locked the door. And Wordsworth looks at the camera and wonders aloud how a man will react to the knowledge that he is about to be blown to bits. Sarah? Yeah. Would you like to go on? Yeah. Wordsworth opens a safe and proclaims he's going to sit and read his Bible, a crime punishable by death. But that gives value to Wordsworth. The Chancellor calls Wordsworth insane and tries to leave again, smacking the door and calling for help. Wordsworth looks at him and repeats the Chancellor's words. You're cheating the audience. You're not facing the cameras. What'd you think about that? That quick turnaround? I was just like, ah! <laughs> Eat him up! The Chancellor goes to the window to look for help, but finds no one there. Wordsworth tells him he should know no one is there, as one of the Chancellor's rules was that the person to be liquidated must be isolated. Which is also like... That's crazy. He, he's playing this game better than him. Literally. You know? He's like, it was your rule that no one else should be there. Mm-hmm. No one's coming to your help. The Chancellor says to Wordsworth that he is insane if he thinks that the state will let one of its own die there. However, Wordsworth doubts they would really come to his rescue, as it would be demeaning and make the state look bad. The Chancellor admits he misjudged Wordsworth, but Wordsworth says the Chancellor underestimated him. You wanted the whole country to see the way a librarian dies, Wordsworth says. Well, let the whole country see the way an official of the state dies, too. Wild. Wild. Wordsworth tells the Chancellor to face the camera, step into the light, and, uh, he, and the, sorry, let me start over. Wordsworth then tells the Chancellor to face the camera and step into the light. Wordsworth tells the Chancellor that he wants the whole country to see the courage of the state, and by that he means how the Chancellor will react. Quote, just you, me, and the great equalizer, end quote. What do you think about that line? I just think it's really interesting, you know, how he's, like, playing the state and how he's also showing the audience how wrong they are. Yeah. Wordsworth speaks to the camera and says that they have a strong symbol of the state and a weak, insignificant librarian with little to dis- distinguish them. 
The Chancellor tells Wordsworth that we shall see. The two sit, we hear Wordsworth reading the Bible aloud as a clock appears on screen, clicking closer and closer to midnight. It's 11.45, then 11.50, and then 11.55, and now we are in the final minute of War- Romney Wordsworth's life. So, when we're watching this sequence, we see, like, a, t- a small clock, like, yeah, going. Clock. I thought that was so interesting, because you're still seeing the clock going, and you're, like... Like, honestly, it's probably, like, a shitty effect, but I think it's really cute, especially... I like this. the effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... But, um, and then, like, he's reading his Bible, and the Chancellor's just like, oh my god, he's, like, sweating and, like, rubbing his face. Yeah, you see the Chancellor, like, not having a good time, and Romney's just reading his Bible. Yeah, chill. So, the Chancellor then begins to sob, begging to be let out, quote, please, please let me out, in the name of God, let me out, end quote. The Chancellor then rushes to the door and tries opening again as Wordsworth, Wordsworth puts down his Bible and stands up and says, yes, Chancellor, in the name of God, I will let you out. He then hands the Chancellor the key and turns back, standing solemnly, clutching his Bible. The Chancellor opens the door and rushes down the stairs. He makes it about halfway down the flight when the room he was in mere seconds ago explodes. We then cut back to the courtroom doors opening, right just how we started the episode, and the Chancellor walks in. As he does, he hears a voice tell him to stand where he is, and he sees someone else sitting in his seat. The man who was his court clerk from earlier is now taking his spot as the judge. The voice tells the Chancellor, almost robotically, that he has been removed from office, and investigators have found him to be obsolete. Quote, You have disgraced the state. You have proven yourself a coward. You have, therefore, no function. End quote. The, that's the new uh, judge speaking. Mm-hmm. The now former Chancellor says that he is not obsolete. And the new chancellor says, you are obsolete. And the crowd joins in, chanting, obsolete, obsolete, obsolete. The former chancellor says that they've made a mistake, and he tries to reason with them, citing all the work he's done for the state and how he wants to serve the state. And he starts to beg for his life before trying to make a break for an escape out of the room somehow, but he's cut off by others in the crowd who have come down to the courtroom floor on all sides. We then face the parallels of when Romney was in the same position, seeing the former chancellor beg for his life, saying that he has a function and a purpose. The crowd then begins to hum loudly, which I always thought was weird watching yeah. this episode like young, when I was younger, and even watching it now, they're just like, hum, yeah. just like as they, before they charge him, mm-hmm. before the former chancellor runs to his replacement at like near the table, begging mm-hmm. for his life. But then the crowd picks him up and takes him away, dragging him out of the room. I thought they were ripping him apart, bro. Yeah. We then hear Rod Serling's monologue once again. The Chancellor, the late Chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete, but so was the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for mankind in the Twilight Zone. The, the end. end of the first episode that we're doing tonight. <laughs> Sahara. Yes. Who's your favorite character and why? Who's my favorite character? Definitely Wordsworth. You really? I mean, yeah. I mean, he's the main. You, he's the main character, kind of. Yeah. So yeah. So like, I think it's really interesting that his name is Wordsworth, like worthy of words. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. What are words worth? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I just think that's really interesting, especially since he uses language to turn what the state says against one of the state members. Yeah. I just think that's just really interesting. And he really did prove his point, because, you know, like, if people saw that execution and they see that the chancellor is dead, I mean, like, he proved his point. Yeah. So really, he died a martyr. Mm-hmm. 
what did this episode make you feel, you know? Um... Like, even though our, our main guy, Romney, died. Well... I didn't care too much for Romney, and I had a feeling this is where the direction of, like, the story was going. Yeah. But, like... It, did me, it definitely made me feel like, you know, we need to, like, not let things this bad happen again. Yeah. Because that's definitely the theme of the story, is, like, we can't let history repeat itself. Especially since we know that Rod Sterling is, like, a Jewish man, so... Yeah. It, it, it truly does make sense mm-hmm. that, like, this is a cautionary tale. Definitely. So, this was the 29th episode in Season 2. It was directed by Elliot Silverstein, who made films well into the 80s. This was his first time directing a Twilight episode, and he had a background in theater, which is very apparent, especially in, like, the courtroom scenes. Yeah. It's very, like, theater-esque to me. Yeah. It was written by Rod Serling, and, origi- and the original air date was June 2nd, 1961. Yeah. It stars Burgess Meredith and Fritz Weaver. So this As episode, Romney and the Chancellor, respectively. Yeah. So this episode seems like a fan fave. What do you think about that? Definitely. I mean, yeah. it's like it's kind of like what Twilight Zone is all about. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like he's kind of like just making comment on like things that are really happening. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Like even now, like we have like the same issue. So. So do you think books like 1984 and Fahrenheit 451 are the vibes of this episode? Yeah. Yeah. Literally 1984. <laughs> I think it's really interesting how the themes of freedom of speech, religion, and even critical play, critical thinking play such a huge part of this episode. Yeah. What do you think? Definitely. I mean, I will say it's very surface level too, mm-hmm. but it is like really good. Yeah. And I, I'm probably saying that because the quality has kind of stood up you know, over time, but it is good. So, I was really surprised how super religious it went, but what do you think of the Bible passages being read? And they were Psalms 23 and 59. I thought they were pretty good. Yeah. You know, basically, like, it's just the scripture saying, like, oh, you know, have comfort in me. You know? Uh-huh. I'm trying not to get too much into it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Why? Go ahead. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, I'm sure our audience doesn't care. Yeah, but we care. <laughs> but we care. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Basically saying like, so Wordsworth, he's fine. He he's he has comfort in something else. He doesn't need the state or anything. But where, then you look at the chancellor, and the state is all he has. You know, uh-huh. it's drawing parallels between the two. Yeah. So, what did you think of the performances? I thought they were really good. I yeah. thought Wordsworth was doing pretty well. Uh-huh. I also thought uh, the Chancellor's actor was doing really well. They were acting their asses off. Yeah, they were. Yeah. So did you know that uh, Burgess, who was Wordsworth, was in another Twilight episode? Which one? Uh, Time Enough at Last. As well as the Chancellor, who was in Third from the Sun. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you'll notice that, too. Like, there are some actors who, like, show up more than once. But I've seen both of those episodes. Oh, really? Time Enough at Last. Uh-huh. Pretty, I'm pretty sure that's the one about the librarian. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, another librarian. Yeah, by yeah. The way. Uh, and then the uh, third from the sun is pretty good. So, but did you know there was a little drama between the director, editor, and the writer? I did not. What happened? So, you know the scene where the Chancellor is trying to run away from the mob as they start humming and it just progressively gets louder? Yeah. Well, Serling had that moment, like, in a dream and he just had to have it in the last scene. But the editor did not like that idea and refused to work with it with both the director and the writer because I guess they agreed. So, 
so the producer of the show tried to meet everyone in the middle, but the director got with the other uh, Twilight directors who seemed to have the same problem. So they went to the union and had it done that editors couldn't just cut stuff just because they didn't like it. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. It was very. Yeah. But yeah, that's all I have for that. Really? Yeah, so... Are you ready for the next one? Shall we read it first? Yeah. Okay. Actually, we should. That's okay. a good idea. Do you want to puff, puff, pass, or do you want to save that till the end, like, overall? Uh, we'll do overall. Okay. So, um, let's rate this episode. This episode out of ten? Yeah. I'll give it an eight. I'll give it an eight. Yeah. It is, it's a very good episode. Yeah, it's one of my favorites, it. but... Yeah, I think... Yeah. I, I literally texted you. I can see why you like this. Yeah. It's very... Yeah. Anyway. So, next episode... All right, everybody. Let me pull something up real quick. The second episode of season three, Mm -hmm. The Arrival, came out on September 22nd, 1961. So literally later that year from this first one. Because um, uh, The Obsolete Man was like the end of season two. Uh uh, The Arrival, like I just said, it's the beginning of season three. So they're not a lot. There's not a big time gap. Like, let's see, July, August, September, like three months. Yeah. Yeah, pretty great. Anyway. The Arrival was produced by Buck Hewton, who also did Harry O, if you've ever heard of that. Uh-uh. Oh, it's an old spy film. And the Mission Mission Impossible show, which was oh. a show back in, like, the 60s, 50s. Oh, that's around crazy. Then. I know. The episode was written by Rod Serling, uh, directed by Boris Segal. And, Sahara, look him up on, like, Wikipedia real quick. B-O-R-I-S. Segal sounds really familiar. No, it's not Steven Segal. I don't think there's any relation there. But, uh, Boris Sokol. Alright, I just want you to look that up. Mm-hmm. Alright, go to his wiki. Alright. He was in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, another similar show at the time. Uh, Where do I go? Just go, just, right there's fine. He, uh,. Directed Peter Dunn and The Man from Uncle. I'm sure people have heard from those. Mm-hmm. But I wanted you to look up how he died. Dude, I saw that and I was like, oh my god. You did? That is so spooky. Yeah. So, Seagal was killed in an accident during production of the miniseries World War Three, when he was partially decapitated by walking into the tail rotor blades of a helicopter in the parking lot of the Timberline Lodge in Oregon. That's wild. An investigation revealed that he turned the wrong way after exiting the helicopter, mm-hmm. and he died five hours later in a Portland hospital. That's wild. Can you imagine if I was partially decapitated by a helicopter? No, he'd be nearly headless Christian. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, real quick. I'll start off the episode a bit, but we'll jump back into this, because okay. I have some other things. So we start off with, we hear Rod Serling's opening uh, narration. This object, should any of you have lived underground for the better parts of your lives and never had the occasion to look toward the sky, is an airplane. Its official designation, a DC-3. We offer this rather obvious comment because this particular airplane, the one you're looking at, is a freak. Now most airplanes take off and land as per scheduled. On rare occasions they crash. But all airplanes can be counted on doing one one or the other. Now, yesterday morning, this particular airplane ceased to just be a commercial carrier. As of its arrival, it became an enigma. A seven-ton puzzle made of aluminum, steel, wire, and a few thousand other component parts. None of which add up to the right thing. In just a moment, we're going to show you the tail end of its history. 
we're going to give you 90% of the jigsaw pieces, and you and Mr. Sheckley here of the Federal Aviation Agency will assume the problem of putting them together along with finding the missing pieces. This we offer as an evening's hobby, a little extracurricular diversion, which is really the national pastime in the Twilight Zone. Sahara, this entire opening, we're seeing a plane land. Yeah. It kind of taxis to the thing, uh-huh. or whatever. Uh-huh. And... Actually, no, sorry. Uh, so this whole opening, uh-huh. we see this plane sitting in the hangar. So I was thinking of a later scene. Yeah. We see this plane sitting in a hangar, uh-huh. and we see Sheckley, like, walking up and down, like, uh-huh. looking, like, at it as he walks past. Yeah. What did you think of this whole opening? I didn't like, really he- think Hearing the narration and what, seeing all of this, Well, you you've never talked to this episode about me, but I was, like... I, don't, I didn't know where it was going. Yeah. So I've never seen this episode before. So I was like, oh, is this the one where the guy, like, sees that monster? But I'm pretty sure... That's like, Nightmare 30. Yeah, so that's what I was thinking, but I guess that wasn't it. So that's where I thought it was going, but yeah. I guess not. Anyway, so... Did you know uh-huh. when Rod Serling was in the army... Uh-huh. Uh, that's what I was waiting to look up, by the way. He was a paratrooper. Oh, really? Yep. And he jumped out of DC-3s. Oh, wow. I thought that was an interesting bit of trivia. But the company that made DC-3s, they, DC, during the war, they're they're also called, uh, during the war, I think their, their, like, military designation was a C-47 Skytrain yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Like, that was their name. Mm-hmm. But they made a bunch of them because they were for paratroopers. That oh, you, wow. you can't just drop, like, six guys out of the plane, you yeah. know? There's, there's, like, the whole army coming in by air. Uh-huh. Okay. So they made a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And after the war ended... They kind of didn't need them all anymore. Oh, wow. And so they sold them to different countries or airliners. Mm-hmm. And so for, like, decades after, like, really until, like, jet engines became, like, more more prominent in mm-hmm. the late 40s and 50s and mm-hmm. 60s, like, DC-3s were, like, the passenger plane. Oh, wow. Like, they were just so common. That's wild. Yeah. But also, they were in other countries, like militaries for decades after and there's still some around wow dc3 they made so many they're still around but anyway uh i just thought that little uh uh tidbit of uh, information was fun uh but yes so sahara yes with this episode Mm -hmm. i know we've said that it's pretty boring yeah but i i think it's interesting Mm -hmm. anyway we'll get into it we see Grant Sheckley approach a plane, like I was just talking about, and he's been sent by the FAA under quite unusual circumstances, and you can see from just this opening sequence that he looks quite puzzled. Mm-hmm. We then see, from an air traffic control tower, a plane landing. This, the same plane. It lands, taxis, parks, and when the guy on the ground signals to shut off his engines, mm-hmm. it does. Uh, a gate attendant and luggage transporter approach the plane, and they expect the door to open, but it does not. They're like, alright, what are y'all doing in here? In there, you know? Uh, nor does anyone respond when they call out to the inside. The, the gate attendant, Cousins, opens the door and to his shock finds that the plane is empty of all passengers. And the transporter, Robbins, finds no luggage on the plane either. They check out the cockpit but find no pilots or crew either, and so they decide to contact the airport authorities and the FAA. Uh-huh. We then cut to this busy operations room. Wait, what did you think of that? Of what? Everyone being God. They're all gone. I was like, uh, I see where manifestation came from, or manifest, or whatever. Yeah. 
Right, see the idea. So we then cut to the busy operations room. Several men in the room are introduced to Grant Sheckley from the Federal Aviation Agency. He's an investigator for them. Sheckley announces that this meeting is more of a preliminary hearing and that they want to get to the bottom of this mess. Grant wants to hear only the facts and save everyone time by not cluttering up the air with personal hypotheses and multiple theories. Grant, who's been with the FAA for 22 years, says he will take care of this case. He first questions Cousins, the gate attendant from earlier, about what happened. Grant then asks the man who helped uh, the plane taxi to the tarmac what happened and if he saw the pilots he was communicating with. He then speaks with Bankston, the dispatcher from Buffalo, who sent the plane to its destination. Grant asks him if he witnessed the pilot sign the itinerary, and Bankston says he did earlier that morning. Grant confirms the identity of the crew to Bankston, and Bankston says, to the best of my knowledge, that it all seems correct. Grant then says the names of the pilots seem awfully familiar to him, but he continues investigating. So he's like, huh, weird, you know? But after hearing everyone's stories, Grant dismisses them all and tells them to stay within arm's reach in case he needs them again. Mm -hmm. Grant is then introduced to the airline's public relations manager, Malloy, by the airline vice president of operations. It's Malloy. Malloy, my bad. Grant says he is always able to determine the cause of these incidents, whether it be pilot or mechanical error. They just take time. The PR manager reminds him that this isn't just an ordinary plane crash, like, but this is a disappearing act and that this could have happened. The airline VP says there must be some sort of explanation, a legitimate and believable explanation. And we then cut to the airplane hangar where we meet Cousins and Robbins again. Cousins states his theory that all the passengers had parachutes kept in the baggage compartment, which explains the lack of luggage as well. He says someplace between here and Buffalo they jumped out, possibly for a joke or a stunt. But then the investigators question him about where the pilots because someone needed to land the plane. Robbins tries to come up with a theory, but is stumped and says he gets freaked out by the empty plane and all the empty blue seats staring at him. The PR manager, the VR, VP of operations, and Grant all begin to ponder as, as to what they can do. Grant asks if the VP checked all the names on the flight list, but he says he doesn't want to have to deal with their families, and that staring at all the empty blue seats on the plane freaks him out, you know? I think I said that already, about the empty blue seats. But anyway, I think I wrote it twice. Grant questions him as to why he hadn't checked, but is distracted by the feeling of all the names on the flight being familiar, too. Grant then enters the plane, but exits again to ask the PR manager if he did in fact say the seats were blue. The the PR manager asks what the point of this is, and it's just interior decoration. And then Grant goes to look at the plane's tail number. The number, as Grant sees it, is N664753. And then Bankston asks, and he asks Bankston to read it off to him, but he says N67588. He asks Robbins to read it, but it says N804578. The PR manager asks what's going on, but Grant says that he has a theory. So, Sahara, what do you think of that before we get too deep into it? I was like, I have no idea what's going on. So, like, huh? Anyway, Grant asks. Well, I thought they were seeing like a ghost, like oh, plane. a ghost plane. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the passengers would, like, show up eventually, you know? Yeah. Well, Grant asks them if they've ever heard of mass suggestion, and they say no. Grant explains it's a kind of hypnosis, and that this plane does not actually exist. Everyone's like, is this guy for real, you know? And he, uh... But Grant says someone somewhere told all of them that a DC-3 landed there earlier that day. This means that everyone there pictured a DC-3 as they know one, which would explain why everyone imagined different seat colors and tail numbers. The PR manager asks if this is all some sort of illusion, and asks why he can feel the plane right there, like he's touching it. Uh Grant says they're going to prove he's either wrong, or they are, by asking Robbins to take the plane out and start the engine. 
We then cut to the outside, where the plane is being rolled out. The PR manager asks Grant if he knows what he's doing, and Grant says that the plane is imaginary, so are the engines, and so are all the propellers, and that he, if he touches them, nothing should happen. Robbins turns on the plane engines, and Grant approaches them. Grant reaches out to the propellers. He's inching closer and closer and closer as everyone is like just watching, but like waiting for what they think is going to happen to happen. Just as he's about to touch it, the plane disappears to everyone's shock. By the way, it disappeared with the guy in it, too. Yes, bro. Uh, I was like, oh. But the plane just disappears. Uh, and he's like, ah, you see that, everybody? The plane isn't really there. But then, like, the guys there start uh, disappearing, too. Yes, bro. Like, they're gone, too. And, and I event- thought they were ghosts or something. And eventually, it's just it's just Grant just standing there all alone on the tarmac. I thought that was so scary. Very. I'd be like, huh? So Grant goes searching for them, he, but he doesn't know where anyone is, and he searches the office where they all were earlier, and he finds Bankston there. He's like, Bankston, what happened? And Bankston's like, what are you talking about? But then Bankston's like, oh, wait, aren't you the, uh, the aren't you Sheckley? Your Grant Sheckley from the FAA. And Grant's like, what kind of joke are you pulling? And he's like, explains everything that pretty much just happened. Yeah. I was like, well, there was the plane and the thing, and you know, like that. Uh, and Bankston's like, are you all right? But Grant asks where, Mal- where Malloy is. Mm-hmm. And Sheckley's like, oh, and uh, Bankston points him out, like, Sheckley's right over there. And he goes to him and he pauses uh, after seeing, like, the newspaper mm-hmm. Malloy was holding. And it has that day's date on it. And it has uh, this article about this movie star on a plane that arrived from Buffalo with mm-hmm. the same, like, flight number and everything. Yeah. Like, flight 13 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, or flight 107. About and Sheckley's like obviously like very confused mm-hmm. and Mal Malloy seems confused as to who Grant is and Bankston's like oh Malloy Grant Grant Malloy you know like explaining who each other are but Grant explains that he's there because of the missing flight and Bankston, Bankston's like there is no missing flight so Grant even more confused now asks uh, how he isn't missing flight 107 you know the whole reason he's here yeah. and Bankston suddenly remembers that Grant was the examiner from another flight another flight 107 out of buffalo around 17 or 18 years ago bankston explains to malloy that the plane was lost in the fog and never found but that they figured the plane went off course into the ocean but that was the one case that grant was never able to solve that no nobody was ever able to solve bankston asked grant to let him drive him home but grant who's in clear distress right now he goes in like a state of shock and just kind of breaks down before leaving the office Mm -hmm. you know Sarah, what'd you think about that reveal? I was just like, oh, okay. And it was all a dream. <laughs> and, like, Grant, he's stumbling around the airport. And by the way, y'all just let him stumble around yeah, out there. Literally. Asking, like, what what happened to Flight 107? He's calling out to the flight as if it were a person. He calls out to the pilots. He's like, why, oh, why didn't you leave a clue, a lead, anything? He just breaks down and he falls to his knees and just starts sobbing. And then we hear Rod Serling's voice. Picture a man with an Achilles heel, a mystery that landed in his life and then turned into a heavy weight, dragged across the years to ultimately take the form of an illusion. Now, that's the clinical answer that they put on the tag as they take him away. But if you choose to think that the explanation has to do with an airborne flying Dutchman, a ghost ship with a fog and shrouded night on a flight that never ends, then you're doing your business in an old stand in the Twilight Zone. Wow. Wow. So yeah, that episode's a bit slow. Mm-hmm. I will say I spent more time writing on this episode than I did any of the others, just because I had to keep going back and checking names and yeah. stuff. But I did spend a lot more time on this episode than I did the other two. Mm-hmm. Sahara, what did you think? Uh, 
was all right. It was all right. I mean, I thought it was very, like, kind of disappointing, especially with the first episode. Yeah. I was expecting more antics. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But I guess it kind of sets the bar for the next episode. So, yeah. So, I, I guess. So, what would you give it out of ten? Hold on. What do you mean, hold on? Well, this episode stars Harold J. Stone, Fred Wayne, and Noah Keen. And Noah Keen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This episode was adapted for the Twilight Zone radio series hosted by Stacey Keach. Some critical responses to this episode were that it was boring and that a review in Variety said that the Twilight Zone was running out of ideas. Uh-huh. And I myself even found myself bored and checking how much time was left. So yeah. what do you think? Yeah, no, I get I get that. Yeah. The episode is kind of boring, but I mean, not every episode can be great, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Also, another fun fact about this episode, it does get referenced in the 2019 Twilight Zone series and the episode Nightmare from 30,000 Feet. Mm-hmm. What so, did you think of the twist? I never get to hear your thoughts on it. I thought it was all right, it was, but it was also... It, it's weird, like, what... What, like trauma will do to a person. Yeah. Because this is... While they have a pretty good idea of what happened, like the plane just got lost and then went down over the ocean, you know? They don't know. And they'll never know. Uh They'll never know, like, what caused the plane to do that. Uh And that's gonna haunt him. And that's his his job is to know Uh and figure out those things. And so when he can't, he feels like he can't do it, you know? Yeah, I just thought maybe that this was maybe, like, an allegory for, like, Alzheimer's or something. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. So... Just a little bit more uh, facts on Rod Serling. Mm-hmm. So, in, during the war, his division first saw combat in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And, surprisingly enough, his unit wasn't used as, like, paratroopers. They were just thrown down as, like, regular infantry. Oh, like, wow. they didn't drop them from planes. They just got there on the ground, like, regular, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, for a variety of reasons, he was transferred to the 511th Demolition Platoon, nicknamed the Death Squad, for its oh, high right. casualty rate. Oh my gosh. Yeah. According to Sergeant Frank Lewis, leader of the squad, quote, talking about Serling, he screwed up somewhere along the line. Apparently he got on someone's nerves. So he did something that got him sent there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lewis also judged that Serling was not suited to be a field soldier. He didn't have the wits or aggressiveness required for combat. End quote. At one point, Lewis, Serling, and others were in a firefight trapped in a foxhole. Mm-hmm. As they waited for darkness, Lewis noted that Serling had not reloaded any of his extra magazines. Serling sometimes went exploring on his own against orders and got lost. <laughs> However, Serling's time in Leyte, the, the island uh, in the Philippines, mm-hmm. shaped his uh, writing and political views for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. He saw death every day while in the Philippines at the hands of his enemies and his allies. And through freak accidents, such as that which killed another Jewish private, Melvin Levy. Levy was delivering a comic monologue for the platoon as they rested under a palm tree when a food crate was dropped from a plane above, decapitating him. Wow. Serling led the funeral services for Levy and placed a Star of David over his grave. Serling later set several of his scripts in the Philippines. There's one in Twilight that I've seen that I remember. Mm-hmm. And used the unpredictability of death as a theme in much of his writing. Do you see that? Oh, yeah. The unpredictability of mm-hmm. it? Yeah. I don't know. I just think about that. You know, uh, like, certainly he definitely, like, saw a lot, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but I, see, I can see the way, like, that it's kind of... It's giving Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. It's, it was, <laughs> I was going to make that uh, comparison, too. Like, it's very, very much like Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. Anyway. Like, this is everyone dealing with 
post-traumatic stress. Yeah, he's just, he's just like, I'm going to write a TV show. <laughs> men, will, men will create five seasons of one of the greatest TV shows ever instead oh of just going God. to therapy. Are you ready to read it? Yeah, I'm honestly going to give this episode a five. I was going to say the same thing. Would I give it a five? Stop copying me. I'm, you're not copying me. That's, I was already thinking it. You're just copying what I'm copying. I'm not copying what you're copying. Uh, by the way, just a little bit more tidbit. You can cut this if you want. But yeah. After being discharged from the Army in 1946, Sterling worked at a rehabilitation hospital while recovering from his wounds. His knee troubled him for years. Later, his wife, Carol, became accustomed to the sound of him falling on the stairs when his knee would buckle. Oh my god! Like, not falling down, but just, like, stumbling. Oh. Which is sad. Mm-hmm. But he did use the GI Bill to uh, enroll in college. Uh, he enrolled in the physical education program at this college, but his interest led him to the theater department and then to broadcasting. That's cool. Which, where, where it all started. And this is, uh, there's a photo of Sterling with his wife and daughters in 1959. <laughs> it's cute. But anyway. So, uh, Sahara, yeah. are you ready for the next episode? Yes. Okay. So, sorry if I, sorry it seems like I'm going slow on the first time I'm posting. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, this is one of the last episodes of The Twilight Zone we ever get to see. Mm-hmm. Season 5, episode 26. I Am the Night, Carly Me Black. Produced by William Frug, written by Rod Serling, and directed by Abner Bieberman. So, William Frug, he was involved in other things. His producing credits include The Twilight Zone, Gilligan's Island, oh, wow. and Bewitched. Oh, wow! I know all of those things. He was a writer for, among other shows, The Dick Powell Show, mm-hmm. Charlie's Angels, and oh. Adventures in Paradise. I know one of those things. Yeah, so he's he's, he's, got, he's gotten around. Yeah. You know, he's, he's definitely produced a lot and then Rod Serling awesome. come on uh, but then we have Abner Bieberman so I looked up Abner Bieberman he did a lot of like you know those like training movies like like during the four- 30s and 40s mm-hmm. we see I see them on TikTok occasionally mm-hmm. but like for the army and whatnot. oh yeah yeah he did a lot of those oh, yeah. and when you go to his career page on Wikipedia uh-huh. it's one sentence he was sometimes credited under the pseudonym Joel Judge. Oh. That's it. That's his career thing. That's crazy. You have to go to his filmography to see all that, but he did, like, a lot of them. Yeah. But he did stuff from, his, the fir- as an actor from 1936 mm-hmm. to 1974. Uh, really 1956, but then he did one thing uh, in 1974. Mm-hmm. But then as a director from 1954 all the way to, and what else did he do? He did... He did Gunsmoke, if oh. you've heard, and uh, the uh, the original Hawaii Five O. Oh wow! And he did that into, into like nineteen seventy. That's crazy. So yeah, so he did he did some stuff too, some great uh, talent here. Like recognizable things. Yeah. Or know. he's known to make these things recognizable. Definitely. So the arrival. Are you ready to get into it, Sarah? The arrival. Not the arrival. Sorry, I am the night colored me black. Yeah. All right. What would do you, you like? think of that title? Though? I think it's. It fits with the episode, definitely. I've also never seen this episode, so it kind of scared me. So it was like... I mean, I kind of figured, like, like trigger warning, guys, but, like, it kind of made me think of, like, Lynchy. Yeah. Yeah, so... So I was uh, very scared. I was like, oh, boy. Yeah, I can't remember what the episode is, but actually, um... Hold on, let me make sure. Uh, one of, uh, Serling's, like, influences... Uh, when doing a, a lot of his episodes was uh, we talked about 
the main ones of uh, censorship, uh, racism, and war. Yeah. Like his main things that he wrote about. Okay. But um, uh, Emmett Till. Yeah. He, I saw he, that. he he did a few episodes with like that in mind and the civil rights movement as well. Yeah. You can tell like even in this episode, there's that. Oh yeah, well. and it made me really happy to finally see black people. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I don't know if you caught if you were ca- if you caught on this at all, yeah. but I I feel like the guy. Uh, that Jagger killed in this episode was a Klansman. Yeah, yeah, I figured. Yeah, definitely. They called him, like, the White Knight, yeah. and he harassed, like, other people, and he was yeah. a psychopath and all that. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, definitely, he does touch on racism a lot, uh, which is also why a lot of studio executives didn't like him either. Yeah. But would you like to start the episode? I can, if you would like me to. Okay. So, we see Sheriff Charlie Cooch and his wife, Ella, awake early in the morning. I just want to say... His name's spelled like Coke, like K O C H, but they call him like Char- like Cooch. It looks like a Cooch. Or Kook. It looks like Cooch. Oh, whatever. Anyway, go on. Charlie tells his wife to go back to sleep. Also, they are very mean to each other. Like, I was like, oh, and they're sleeping in separate beds, by the way. Yeah, we never see this wife outside of the scene, by the way. We never see her again. So they both point out how dark it is outside and that it must be 3 or 4 a.m. Ella asks why he has to be up so early as it's only a hanging. She also asks what time they string him up. Charlie replies 9.30 that he hopes the whole town doesn't show up. He also asks her to bring breakfast to him and, and the condemned later. Ella asks how the doomed man likes his eggs and he replies edible. Charlie They're the last eggs he's ever going to have, so make them edible. Oh, wow. Yeah. Charlie leaves and we see the town uh, clock strikes 7.30 a.m. Much later than we thought, at the police station, Charlie and his deputy Pierce talk about the strange situation, how it's 7.30 a.m. is still pitch blackout. Charlie says he has no idea why it's still dark out. We then hear Rod Serling's voice. Sheriff Charlie Cook, on the morning of an execution, as a matter of fact, it's 7.30 in the morning. Logic and natural laws dictate that at this hour, there should be daylight. It is a simple rule of physical science that the sun should rise at a certain moment and supersede the darkness. But at this given moment, Sheriff Charlie Koch, a deputy named Pierce, a condemned man named Jagger, in a small, inconsequential village will shortly find out that there are causes and effects that have no precedent, such is usually the case in the Twilight Zone. Bum bum. Sahara, what did you think of this so far? What do you think the episode was about when we get to this part? Um, like I said before, a lynching, like... I was very surprised when I saw Jagger or Jagger. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it makes it just less traumatic for my eyes. Definitely. um, Which I really appreciate. But, um, yeah, I was just like, okay, like, why is there darkness, you know? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I thought maybe it was like aliens or something is what I was thinking. Yeah, definitely. We should watch some more episodes after this. There are a couple I want to watch with you. Okay. Anyway, back in the sheriff's office, we meet the local newspaper reporter, Mr. Colby, who discusses the frequent calls he's answered concerning the darkness with uh, Coke and Pierce, or Charlie and Pierce. One old lady uh, called him and said it was the end of the world with uh, scriptures to back it up. But it's now 7.45, and after placing a call to the state capitol, it appears the whole, that this town is now the only place covered in darkness, according to the reporter. Mr. Colby then asks about Jagger, and Pierce says he brought him a cup of coffee earlier, and then grins as he said he also reminded him of the day. 
Colby asks him if he tortured small animals as a kid, or if he just took the wings off of flies, referring to his taste of hurting others, and then asks if we can speak to Jagger. So, right here, we can tell Pierce is very, like, Mm -hmm. he abuses his position. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's as a police officer, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, not not cool. And then Charlie's kind of just, like, trying to get by, you know? Mm -hmm. So... Colby asks the men if they think Jagger is innocent, as the man Jagger killed was a cross-burning psychopath who attacked Jagger, according to him. Uh, and also points out that Pierce perjured himself to convict Jagger as well. Colby also points out how Pierce's testimony, that he saw Jagger and the, shoot the man from across the room, was false, as the man had powder burns all over, which would point to a close-range shooter. Colby also points out Charlie's cherry-picked testimony, where he left out the parts that would have... Uh, help maybe get Jagger free and included the parts that definitely got him convicted Mm -hmm. but also acknowledges his own shortcomings in covering the trial so he's like look I know that Pierce lied on the stand and you left a lot out that could have freed him Uh, but even I like I didn't cover this as freely as I could you know because he's the newspaper reporter Mm -hmm. so he didn't you know cover it very fairly do things like that scare you? uh it's just more like like oh like how, how far can this go you know yeah Apparently very far. We then hear... What was that for? What? What you just said? Just breathing. Oh. Quote, justice is being served on a platter with its tongue cut out, end quote, Mr. Colby. What'd you think of that quote? I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. It good. What'd you think? Like, what does that make you think? I don't remember him saying that. I'm so sorry. But, like... <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Harry didn't watch the episode. I did watch the episode. No, you didn't. Whatever. Uh, yeah, honestly, it makes me think of, like, a pig on a platter. Yeah. It's the imagery that I'm looking. Yeah. Like, like, feeding the big man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I guess. Yeah. So, Colby and Charlie go to see Jagger, with Charlie leaving after opening the jail cell, leaving the uh, Jagger and Charlie alone. Colby asks Jagger what he's thinking about and what he wants, and Jagger just says he's just waiting for death to come. Jagger says that it he's guilty when asked for comment by Colby and that he's guilty because of how the town perceives him. Jagger talks about the man he killed, how he was the white knight, the cross burner, the bomb thrower, end quote, possibly alluding that that the man was involved with the clan. Uh, Jagger always talks about uh, how he's always been like singled out that like no one liked him, Mm -hmm. you know, but Colby agrees with Jagger but says that they're not free to take life when they see fit and that they're not animals. But Jagger tells him to tell it to the man fixing his rope, the sheriff and deputy, and to the townsfolk who are going to watch him die. It is now 9 a.m., and members of the town have gathered to watch the execution. They also talk about the darkness and listen to the radio, where the the radio hosts discuss the strange occurrence, too. Apparently, it is also confirmation this is the only place experiencing darkness. Charlie and Pierce arrive at the scene, and while Pierce is excited, Charlie is not. Colby, who's also there, asks if they should postpone the execution, citing the circumstances, but Pierce disagrees. Pierce makes fun of Colby and his newspaper, his crummy little newspaper, Uh, and Pierce tries to get Charlie to step in, but Charlie talks about how Colby was right about him, how he saw the body, but when a town committee said that there would be no autopsy, he followed suit, as he wanted to be re-elected sheriff. So, we see Colby... And Charlie both are like, okay, what we did was wrong, but we can't change that now. Yeah. You know? Uh, Charlie didn't give a fair testimony, 
uh, he saw that like the guy who was killed had burn marks all over which indicated that mm-hmm. whoever shot him was like right next to him but Pierce said that he saw him shoot him he saw Jagger shoot the man from across the room so he lied I think it's very important to see that like tells us that like we're no, we are no better than the man we are hanging we all have our shortcomings definitely it's definitely like a the first who cast the first stone or something like that yeah is the vibe i'm getting yeah he also says that colby just wanted to be able to sell more newspapers by sensationalizing the trial and pierce did it because he wanted to be more popular to be liked by others That's I, so crazy. I assume the people that want jagger killed yeah pierce then grabs charlie telling him that he uh, he didn't take it from colby <coughs> Pierce then grabs Charlie, telling him that he didn't take it from Colby, and I won't take it from you either, but Charlie tells him to lay off, or he'll spread him all over the yard. Oh. It's now, uh, or, in layman's terms, kill him. It's now 9.25, and Charlie and Pierce go to fetch Jagger for the execution. Colby speaks to the town reverend, and asks for a theological explanation of the shroud. The reverend is intrigued, but says Jagger wouldn't see him. Colby says Jagger is a lonely man, but won't be for long. And Charlie and Pierce then arrive with Jagger, and the Reverend goes to speak with him. The Reverend says despite their differences in faith and race, with Re- the, Re- the Reverend being black and Jagger white, Jagger stood up for people like him, and that the Reverend wants to give Jagger some amount of peace before the end, but Jagger denies Annie and says, those words are enough and I don't need any more. That's not exactly what he said, but that was the best way of, like... Yeah, explaining it. No, I yeah. understand. I really like that. I feel like... The way the reverend kind of recognizes, He's like, like thank you, like thank you, like yeah, that could have been like, if like killing that man is either gonna be me or one of my brothers and sisters that could have been killed by this man. So I thank you for protecting us because nobody else does. Yeah, like that kind of thing, and then like him wanting to like save his soul because he is a reverend, but like having Jagger be like, you know, having you say thank you to me, like recognizing that I did do this for you, that's enough for me, yeah. and I can die peacefully knowing that I did was the right thing even though nobody else agrees with me definitely and then there's this one woman in the crowd who's like right there and she's like get it over with and literally the whole, and the whole crowd like starts shouting mm-hmm. that Jagger is led to the gallows Jagger says that uh, all, all this will please you all but I won't give you the satisfaction of an apology and Jagger then just stares at the noose that's been prepared for him while the reverend tells him not to return the people's hate mm-hmm. Jagger tells the reverend to go home but the reverend asks if he has any regrets Jagger says that he enjoyed killing the man, and the Reverend acknowledges Jagger's guilt. Jagger points out the Reverend wanting to get with the majority, but the Reverend says that that's all there is, the majority. The minority must have died on the cross 2,000 years ago. So he's talking about how, like, kindness died a long time ago, and all we have are these people's hate for each other, whether it be Jagger for that man or the town, or the town for Jagger and Pierce for Jagger and Charlie for himself, kind of, and for the town, you know? Well, but, I could see that. I kind of thought of maybe that he was saying that, like... Like, all there is is just these people's hate? No. Oh. Uh, like, to get with the majority, but that's all there is. The majority, the minority must have died on the cross. I was kind of thinking that that was more like we're all the human race, and that we shouldn't hate each other like this. Yeah. Like, we need to choose a better path. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I don't know if that's what you just said, but, like, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, we then see the faces of the crowd as Jagger is led to the gallows and we hear him hang and yeah. the rope swinging. Dude, that made me so uncomfortable. It made me itchy yeah. in the worst we, way. We, we see their faces tightening and they're visibly contorted yeah. as we just hear the rope swinging back and forth. Pierce asks the Reverend if he's seen the light, but the Reverend asks him, have you? Uh, he then turns to the crowd and then asks them all the same. 
in all this darkness, is there anybody who can make out the truth? Wow. What'd you think of that? I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. The Reverend says Jagger hated, killed, and died, and says the town has now hated and killed, and now there's not one of them who isn't doomed. He asks the crowd if they know why it's dark, and answers that it's the hate Jagger felt, the hate the town felt, the hate everyone feels. One of the townspeople, the same one who yelled for them to get on with it earlier, by the way, if you notice that, Mm -hmm. points out that it's now getting even darker. Darkness covers the entire town even more now. But back in the police station, Pierce says to Charlie and Colby that the shuttle will lift soon. It's no more than a fog. But Charlie and Colby just ignore him. Mm. Pierce asks if there will be sun again, but Colby speaks up and says he doesn't know if there ever will be daylight again. Colby turns on the radio, and we're now hearing of other shrouds of darkness across the world. Over a street in Dallas, where JFK was killed, the Berlin Wall, Budapest, there were protests that were put down by... Uh, the Soviet Union, yeah. uh, Birmingham, Alabama, yeah. Shanghai, North Vietnam, and parts of Chicago, the darkness takes its shape. We then hear Rod Storming's voice as the screen fades to black, which I thought was a nice touch, by the way. Uh-huh. Normally, we just hear him talk as we see yeah. him on screen, but this uh-huh. time it fade, faded to black. A sickness known as hate, not a virus, not a microbe, not a germ, but a sickness nonetheless, highly contagious, deadly in its effects. Don't look for it in the twilight zone. Look for it in a mirror. Look for it before the light goes out altogether. What'd you think of that? That, honestly, so powerful. Powerful? Yeah. Really, you think so? Oh, yeah. I think, like, I even wrote in my notes that I think that, like, it's very, like, I think this episode is really good on commentating on social issues given the social issues of the time. Yeah. And for, for what I could understand, this episode was probably really hard for something to get greenlit. Yeah, definitely. But there was even a story, like, like way earlier when they were trying to get, like, a story going on, that people's eyes were getting covered by, like, extra flesh on their eyelids because I of saw, it. I saw that. That was wild. Yeah. When I was doing my research, I saw that, too. And how it took their eyes. Yeah. Anyway. What did you think of this episode? I really liked it. You really did like it? I thought it was very, like, impactful. Yeah. So, I tried to get episodes, and that's why I could have gone with the episodes I really liked to do for this, but I wanted to get episodes that were kind of spread across the platter. So we have the first episode, which talks about, uh, like, 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 small people, like the small people versus the big people argument, you know? If you see one guy, he's taking on this fascist super state or whatever that controls everything. We see... Because Ross and I always tried to talk about that kind of commentary and whatnot. Uh, (coughs) And then I tried to get an episode that was kind of like that that, that weird sci-fi era from the 50s and 60s with Mm -hmm. the arrival, you know, like the uh, like uh, midnight uh, horror hour, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But then I wanted to get one final episode that talked about like the real life like issues that everyday people like either see or Mm -hmm. face, you know? So we have that first issue where like not everybody faces but it's still important and yeah. then we have the weird sci-fi hour and then we have the real gritty stuff and which episode did you, of those three did you think was the best oh definitely this one this one was this your favorite of the three yeah okay. really yeah. What, what would you rate it an eight an eight yeah okay I was gonna give it a seven okay but it is really good it, it is, is a good episode I like it a lot so this episode stars Michael Constantine Paul Fix George Lindsay Ivan Dixon and Terry Becker who plays who I don't know. Okay. I know Ivan Dixon plays the Reverend, though. So one of the one of the things I really liked about this episode was probably the camera angle 
of the noose where we're seeing the noose and then through the noose we're seeing uh jager or jagger, jagger. yeah, yeah. Look, look I, I really like i liked it too i was like oh that's so good if we could make the, that like uh the episodes like thumbnail i would yeah if we can find it yeah i mean you can just screenshot but yeah okay <laughs> anyway i i just feel like that image alone is pretty powerful it's definitely something i will take away from it so I think the aspect of darkness being the hate and evil is a really interesting concept. What did you think? I thought it was a really good way of um, showing, like the phys- like the consequences uh-huh. of like people's actions. Uh-huh. Like you're like covered with the shroud of darkness, the uh-huh. shroud of hate. You know, uh-huh. it's like it's a physical, like thing now, not just like a mental thing. Like it's yeah. fi- like they can't see anymore. What did it's- you think about the places that they uh, said in the uh, radio? I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think that was a way for, like, Sterling to connect it with, like, people. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, this hate is the same hate you see from the guy who shot Kennedy, yeah. from the Soviets putting down protests in Hungary, mm-hmm. to the Berlin Wall, to our war in Vietnam, yeah. you know? Like, it's it's all just fueled by hate yeah. and power. Definitely. That's just really, like, cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I found it interesting that... Uh, Jager, Jagger. Oh, I'm sorry. And also, he, he even like he was like, hey, and this, he's like, he's not even just talking about like other people around the world. He's like, this is y'all too. Yeah. This is Chicago. This uh, is the way. Uh, Birmingham. Alabama. Yeah, this is the way racists are acting in Birmingham yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. This is like I already said, the war in Vietnam. Uh-huh. This is this is you guys too. Uh-huh. Don't think that you're immune to this. That's crazy. So I find it interesting that uh, Jagger had to die. I really thought the town would be like, oh, well, we see the error of our ways, and then the sun comes out. But I guess that wouldn't be a Twilight Zone mm-hmm. episode, wouldn't it? Nope. I really like The Reverend out of all the episodes we picked, as well as the ones I watched independently. It was nice seeing people of color included in a sci-fi horror. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I have. That's all you have? Are you ready to... Is this a puff, puff, pass, or a puff, puff, snap? I would say the show, the show the as a whole... Mm-hmm. It's a puff, puff, smash. I would say it's a smash. Too. It's a smash. I think you picked the episodes really well. It's a really good show, and yeah. there are some episodes that are boring, but yeah. I promise some of them are like some of the greatest like pieces of film. of social commentary, like from like yeah. the mid twentieth century. So why did you pick this for sci-fi? So I picked it because we haven't done a show yet. Yeah. And I wanted to do this because I I've always liked the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something different because I know that you've never really seen it. Yeah. Like this is your first time watching it, wasn't it? Well, I've seen a couple of episodes. With oh, you. oh yeah, because and when we were in, we went to we grew up in the same schools. So, if you've ever seen the monsters that do our are do on Maple Street or the Hitchhiker. We watched those, like, in school growing up, and they're both really good episodes. And then I watched the one where that guy is like, oh, isn't this great? He's like, I deserve to be in hell. He's like, sir, you're already there. Uh, I can't remember that one. Yeah, I I don't know what it's called, but yeah, it is the guy who's like, uh, he's he's a mobster or something, and he dies, and he's in heaven, and uh, we see he he wins all the time at the casino, and all the women want him, and he has all this, all the stuff he wanted in his real life. But after a while, it gets old, you know? He's like... Well, maybe I should. Maybe I don't belong here, you know. Yeah. And he goes to talk to, um, I think Pip is the name of the <laughs> guy, whatever. But he's like, uh, "Hey, I don't think I belong in heaven. I think I belong in the other place." He was like, "You're confused. This is the other place. Like you're in hell." That's crazy. Yeah, we love that episode. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway. 
But yeah, I would say overall, how would you rate this? Oh wait, no, let's give one character each, one character each from the uh, episodes. Blood rotation? Yes. No. Okay. Um, Wordsworth? Okay. Uh, now you gotta pick one from the arrival. The DC3. Okay. And uh, Jagger. Okay. I would pick the specifically the long table and the tall doors. <laughs> From uh, yeah, yeah, the obsolete man. Yeah. Then I would pick the guy who disappears in the uh, in the uh, plane. He said. No, literally. And then I would pick the eggs that we never got to see be eaten. I love eggs. Exactly. But yeah, that was our. Twilight Zone episode. Let us know if you guys liked us doing a show. Maybe that's something we can try and do once a month. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Or let us know how Christian did hosting for the very first time. Yeah, so Hera's sick, so I had to take over talking for <laughs> He wrote down all our notes, the whole script. Good job, baby. Mm-hmm. I think you did really well. Totally. But, you, but where can you ask us all this? You can get a hold of us at Twitter, DM us at Puff Pass Podcast. Uh, we are also on Tumblr. We are Puff Puff Podcast. And if you just would like to email us, you can email us at Puff Puff Podcast twenty three at gmail.com. You can find us and rate us both on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We are the couple that is smoking in the background. And Christian Sahara. What movie are we doing next for our We sci-fi are doing. I don't. It came, it came out in the two thousands. I don't know what year it was, but the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Woo! Woo! So excited! I grew up with this movie. I Sahara love loves this, this movie. movie. Oh, it's so funny! I love it. I'm so excited. <laughs> so long, <laughs> All right, so we post new episodes at midnight on Sunday, and we have sober thoughts once a month on the last Wednesday. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Stay tuned, y'all. <laughs> we tell them goodbye. And tell them not everybody. to get sick. And remember, stay safe in the Twilight Zone. <laughs>